we've got Carlo. He's in court potentially right now. So I'm going to give a minute, then do a disclaimer, and then we'll bring some folks up and do an intro. I want to thank everybody for coming. Retweet the room. There are a couple of folks who DM me said they might stop by today. We'll try and spend the next hour talking about the news of the day, really just for discussion purposes. Nothing here said by any host or anyone on stage should be taken as legal advice um if that's what you're looking for you should do so privately not on a recorded twitter space this twitter space is recorded um carlo will fill me in on some of the disclosure disclosure portions that i missed but i think we want to be on the record not financial advice not legal advice really just for discussion purposes only. Um, I'm just now in the group chat. There was a lot going on, and I'm just now going scrolling back to see the details. Um, Let's give Carlo a minute, but please jump up, Ellie, others, anyone who wants to chat or has some info in the last 24 hours. I haven't been up to speed. I usually use this discussion to get up to speed. I don't know if Peltz wants to share about a trademark filing, but or maybe that's confidential. There's your question. Ellie's clapping, cheering him on. What's up, pal? Hey, Ray. How you doing? GM. GM. Well, it's been a wild day. It's, you know. Yeah, tell me where to start. Um, I'm really going through our, our group chat trying to find some of the primary sources. <clears throat> but there's a couple of different newsworthy things happening. Yeah, so there there were, you know, a Coinbase employee. Employee. This is all allegedly, right? I'm just reading from the the documents that were filed by the Department of Justice and the SEC. Uh, a Coinbase employee allegedly had some information about which coins or tokens were going to be listed on Coinbase before they were actually listening uh, listed. Uh, allegedly, te- you know, texted his brother and a friend to to buy them, and they made out one and a half million dollars. Um, and so he, he, as he was boarding a flight, was detained uh, to India. A one-way flight was was detained by local law enforcement. And you know, just today we we were learning all this. The Department of Justice filed a criminal action um, for for the insider trading, although alleging it as wire fraud. And then, you know, I, I think that's tracked a lot of the other lawsuits we've seen filed, perhaps in the past few months. Um, the, the criminal suits that have been filed. And then I think much more uh, interesting for conversational purposes, at least um, perhaps more relevant to, to a lot of participants in the, in the web three ecosystem is the sec filed um, 
a, a civil, a parallel civil case um, against the same three individuals, basically alleging that the, 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 the their actions concerning nine tokens were, were doing, were, were, those, those tokens were securities. So it's, it's, um, so what we didn't see in the open sea case where enforcement agency claimed any action of wrongdoing doing that required them to prove that it was a security we are seeing here with these coinbase tokens so in, in this in the sec civil case correct so i mean they took I, this, on this was just a, released a like half action. an hour ago Exactly. I've been skimming it, so I'm sure there's they more to unpack here. Cause of action that that makes us believe that they're going to have to prove that they're necessarily taking the position that it's a security. Correct. The SEC is alleging violation of 10B of the Exchange Act, um, which you know, Rule 10B5, which is like you know, it's insider information essentially, um, requiring that these that the assets, the digital assets that they're trading, are securities. So that's the allegation. And then in the complaint, in the civil complaint, the SEC goes, you know, there's nine assets listed. Um, you know, Rally, I think, is a pretty popular one that I've heard of before. Um, you know, and they're going through each each of one of the, the tokens saying that the purchasers of that token invested in a common enterprise and that they the investors had a reasonable expectation of profits based on the efforts of others. And then for each token itemizing, uh, the facts that would make those uh, allegations be true, or at least in, in, in their opinion, right? Well, what's the timing of a SEC civil action like this? When do we start seeing discovering facts? Can it be drawn out? This seems like the test case. This is the first time we get behind the scenes since like 2017. Yeah, that's going to be better question for for you know a defense attorney in the space that has worked on cases like these and this is also interesting right they're not i don't know if you can still hear me but they're not suing the the tokens or their platforms but the individuals that's fascinating because well go ahead cw Oh, yeah, no, I was just going to say, um, it's going to be just the same normal federal rules of civil procedure uh, that's going to govern. I mean, so it's going to take as long as it's going to take for any other major case to go through discovery. Uh, I think it's apt to note that this will probably be some sort of test case because, yeah, this is the first time that they've really shown their cards and sort of pointing out all of the specific facts that they think make all these alt tokens securities. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, if another big firm kind of steps in to help these guys out, because this this could be a huge case. Ira, I want to I want to hear your your thoughts. My gut reaction, just because that's what's trained, like this this plaintiff world. Um, geez, if the SEC is making out the case against the individual coins, isn't it a pre- a layup for a plaintiff's firm to, firm to go after the exchange? and really cause a nightmare and force a settlement? What, yep. what are you thinking, Ira? All right, I just wanted to get the um, the lay of the lamp procedurally because I've been looking at this this morning as it comes in. Please, First that's I... a fascinating too, especially our non-lawyer audience. Go ahead. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the first thing I saw was a civil suit by the SEC. And then I saw the Department of Justice do a press release that I think Carlo tweeted. Um, that was a criminal case. So are we sitting here with a posture of having simultaneous civil and criminal cases going on? Am I right about that? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So um, to a certain extent, then, I was super excited initially because I thought that it was really the porridge was just right for me when it came to this case. That seemed to resonate with me. The criminal case almost makes a civil case kind of like a sideshow because um, I've had that happen a number of times. And you're not usually going to want to litigate a civil case while you have a white collar case coming on. So usually those cases get stayed. Um, And so... Now, sometimes they don't, but for me, if I was these defendants' lawyers, I'd be focusing in a very large way on the criminal case and the civil case and discovery. I have that going on right now, and the civil cases get stayed. There is no discovery. There is nothing, no motions to dismiss, and then the criminal case carves its way through procedurally, and sometimes as race judicata or actually at least collateral estoppel. And so the civil case would actually become relatively unimportant if somebody loses their criminal case. So that's kind of like the pragmatic thing. Do you, do you, do you agree with me? It's tough to disagree with you, Ira. Um, that's, that's an interesting take as far as having them stayed. Um, I just feel it opens up if, if they're taking that position, it opens up just some very aggressive opportunities for um, plaintiffs firms to really shake things up. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, I totally agree with your point. And, but, you know, and I mean, I could take it one step further and please don't take me literally on this, but it's pretty close to literal. <laughs> but I was, I remember um, semi joking back around 2000 that there was so much um, random non-compliance going on on the web that you could pick out the top 100 e-commerce sites at that date in that era even going into 2010 even currently and a good plaintiff's lawyer a good class action lawyer tech-centric class action lawyer could find multiple civil lawsuits to bring. There, there's this a combinatorial explosion of complexity so that to be fair to defendants, and um, it's almost impossible to always be in compliance with every U.S. law, yet alone every global law. So here, I mean, if I want to, we get right down to it. The question that runs through my mind, now putting my defense cap on, and looking at the indictment is one boy, this sounds bad. You know, you're just to go ahead and process listings and you're telling, you know, your relatives, which ones are going to manifest and they go ahead and buy them. And they're like, well, you know, like orphan drugs, they're like, the type that folks would ordinarily not buy absent detailed info. <laughs> I mean, you know, most folks just have Ethereum and Bitcoin. They don't start buying exotic coins 
you know, right before they're about to roll out by accident. So that's a really bad fact pattern. But asking the question, um, is this certainly a security? Is this a commodity? Is this something else? And for me, that could hurt Coinbase. Exactly what you're saying, Ray. That could hurt Coinbase. Why could it hurt Coinbase? Because it could put, case law could put a lot of what they're doing into legal noncompliance. Because you got to do things a lot differently when you're Charles Schwab than when you're Coinbase on what you can and can't sell. And the whole idea of it is actually kind of weird because going all the way back to the start of Bitcoin, lawyers have been going through contortions to position these tokens as utility, as part of a gaming system, as part of a domain system. And even though folks were trading the hell out of them, nobody really wanted to emphasize that point. And now this entire indictment emphasizes this like they're stocks. And so for me, that's a very scary proposition that goes well beyond these defendants. It could obviously permeate Coinbase and others. And then you have the situation where, okay, I call it our friends. Our friends who are, you know, well-intended, good human beings who want to know what the rules are. And what the heck's an exchange? What What is a crypto exchange? Is it like a little one where they have like 30 things on it, you know, out of uh, some foreign thing? Is it reach a special status where Coinbase, which looks and feels like Charles Schwab, it's got to be that big? Like, when does something reach the point where it's an exchange to trigger what looks like a, a made-up rule that they want to have happen by judge-made law? that now something could be insider trading. Um, and then you have the natural course of there just being folks who could pop up exchanges all day long. So for me, I still see that what happened here wasn't good. I, you know, it, we all certainly empathize with Coinbase on this, but I also don't know what the rule set is so people would know how to conduct themselves so they could avoid going to jail in the future. So that's, that's my diatribe for the morning. Thanks, Ira. Carlo, are you with us? Yes. Raising my hand just to let Thanks, you know I Ira. finally made it in. Uh, thank you, Jenko. Thank you, Ira. Thank you, Peltz. Um, had some time-sensitive materials on a case that had to go out and had to deal with the FedEx printing, stapling, boxing. And That's shipping. awesome. So, <laughs> so there is never a dull moment in IRL law. And- That's the best. And there's never a dull moment on the blockchain. Um, man, Those this are really is a... well, well said points, Ira. Carlo, you read yeah. through best you could. Where does your Briefly. gut take you as a defense counsel? I mean, the ambiguities in the rules, the ambiguities on who's, you, you know, the, the responsibilities of each employee. You can maybe differentiate. Maybe this, this information was out widely and coinbase misused it so this wasn't like i don't know what defenses are available what fact patterns could save this so many nuanced and i'm sorry for all the background noise um 
so many nuances to this. It is a bombshell development. Um, it inches us one step closer to suggesting that insider trading is the vehicle that the government is going to do when it comes to criminal prosecutions in this space, which, of course, as Ira is explaining very astutely, inches us closer to defining these things as securities. And it begs the question now, how much of prior conduct is going to be now closely scrutinized under not only the notion that these things are securities, and we're just in cryptocurrencies right now, we don't know where NFTs are going to fall in all this, but in, in the realm of cryptocurrencies now, if, if these things are going to start to drift into securities, then open open sea, this Coinbase case are inching us closer to the notion that we are now going to start to see insider trading as being the theory of prosecution and the theory of regulation. An observation, Ira, and I join with you on this, it's an interesting thing to see concurrent cases, civil and concurrent criminal cases, because it puts the defendants in a strange uh, place. And it Is puts that the a due process argument place. where you're well, able to put the shield. civil aside? It's the doctrine of the sword and the shield, which I often have to deal with in cases like this, where in the civil side, if there's going to be discovery and depositions, you are forced to have to draw the sword to defend yourself, but simultaneously raise the shield to insulate yourself from self-incrimination. So it puts the it puts the defendants in a very difficult position and it triggers a lot of Fifth Amendment in, implications. And I think Ira's very astutely describing a scenario in which they may have to pause the civil case in order to let the criminal case play out. Discovery is much more liberal in the civil cases. So it is it is a tool that can be used and you know Ira, you, you could speak to this too, I think. Prosecutors know this. Prosecutors know that civil action has much more far-reaching discovery tools at its disposal, and prosecutors generally do not use civil or administrative actions as an investigative tool when bringing criminal cases because it just is so much overlap. The, um, the, the, yes, the, the things that I think about, and I, again, I have this going on right now, so this is not about any of my cases, if anyone's listening. <laughs> but there's a lot of tactical stuff that can happen here. Um, if the defense team has the resources and the funding, and they plan on having their clients testify anyway, then you could keep the case, slow down, slow it down. And you use the civil case to get early discovery, which overlaps with the criminal case, which prosecutors, generally speaking, don't tend to like. You could also test out in law and motion in a much in a much better environment. Believe it or not, folks may not realize this, but bringing a motion to dismiss under 12B6 many times is a lot easier to win those than a motion to dismiss in a federal criminal case. The standards reverse, but they're not. So there are some questions of law right here on that could be possibly resolved through a, even a 12B6 motion. So 
you know, or you just bring the 12B6 motion, get the result, then move for the stay. There's all sorts of procedural gamesmanship that can happen on both sides right here. And to a certain extent, let's just be honest about it. This is gamesmanship. I mean, you don't need both. You could just bring one. Uh, the SEC civil case made the parge just right on what was going on. But I could see where reasonable minds could differ on that. And I do think, you know, look, I think everyone here on the government side, this is my view, but they're obviously acting in good faith. Um, I agree. I agree. And, and, and I haven't looked at the civil case to be able to say otherwise. So I agree with you on that, Ira. And, and, and so we're going to make some case law right here. But I am a little concerned that the case law could have, a, or, or at least unintended impact by the prosecutors uh, on society, on Coinbase, on our economy. Exactly. There's, there's a mandate for the criminal prosecution that's slightly inconsistent with if the SEC... Like, is there a strategy here to bringing it as a civil suit and not a, a compliance issue? Or am I misstating their options? Because I, I think, like, given... Obviously, the defendant's going to be focused on criminal and their freedom. They're going to hire a legal team that's focused on that. They have to be, or it's, or it's a breach of their duty. Um, they're putting individuals in a position that would sacrifice the matter of law, whether it's a security or not, potentially, for their own freedom in their own criminal case. And it puts the SEC's argument at a huge advantage. Does, is that true or am I missing something? We got to see how this is going to play out. I understand what you're saying. Um, they thought this through. I mean, let's let's go back for a second. I'm thinking out loud because we just saw it. I, I may change my mind like in an hour or two. But some. So please tell me if my predicates are right. But um, I, does Coinbase have an arbitration clause in their uh, terms of service? I think they do. I believe they I do. do. Uh, yeah. Yes. I think we've talked about it. All right. So Ray, uh, at least initially class action lawyers don't like generally speaking arbitration clauses with class action waivers then you have like one-off arbitrations if they're enforceable so if they have that that may stop the floodgates from opening up for other bad stuff yeah but even that would be at issue because if you're if you're not giving the right disclaimer around the security you're selling the public maybe true. their terms aren't as lockstep but i agree with you so. true true you know and uh you know, I've litigated those things mostly on the class action lawyer side, but certainly because I represent a lot of platforms, I've actually represented on both sides. But anyway, so so thank you, Ray, for that. Um, but that's the first point I, I want to make. The second point I want to make was something that I've always kind of pondered in these kinds of cases on the civil side, which maybe the SEC case is as uh, an end run around it, and that I think. Coinbase usually would be the one who would sue their own employee for breach of the confidentiality agreement and get a remedy. And we haven't yet had a full tee up of impari delicto where the plaintiff is acting bad so they don't get the keys to the courthouse, almost like gambling cases. 
um, when both sides have a dispute over gambling and one sues the other for, say, a gambling debt or whatever, the court may just toss both of them out of court if the court doesn't give relief to two folks acting bad. And so for me, um, by the government intervening in all this, it makes it makes the issues asymmetrical for the defendant who may actually for someone else who's violating the law and it may prevent them from raising in pari delicto as effectively. And so, you know, those are some of the things that I'm thinking about right now. Um, I just see this as a criminal case. Uh, I see it as a case where there's probably going to be, even though they don't tend to plea bargain, there'll be some sort of plea bargain. And it may actually end up meaning there'll be no case law whatsoever in either one of those cases. I see that's possibly where it's going. And the defense is that the power yeah. move by the SEC by by coming coming in heavy headlines, indictment, three different cases, war on all fronts, make life miserable for the employee of wrongdoing, throw accusations that this is a security. The complaint walks through the Howey test, and then you settle. And that ambiguity is the source of power for a bit. It could it could very well be because we're all uh, many of us are lawyers. We're all up here thinking, okay, what's the rule? Um, you know, you look at the and and you don't, you know, as a defense lawyer, you're basically getting ready to talk to the prosecutors and say, before we get started on this case, can you please tell me? what your position is. Is it a security, a commodity, or are we still awaiting Congress to tell us and we all don't know, so we're just guessing? So we maybe have... a bill of particulars, Ira. Maybe yeah, exactly. Maybe a bill of particulars. Well, yeah, I don't know. Request for admission in the civil yeah. set. Well, what, whatever, but, a, but I, yeah, I don't criminal know. Criminal they care if it's a security or not, though. Yeah, but that's the point. I mean, if it's a, there's a statute directly on point for like what constitutes, you know, insider trading and tipping and breach of fiduciary duty um, here, they're calling it insider trading because they get a lot of us in the crypto community. We know we know what that is. But then us lawyers also know that insider trading is tethered to a federal statute, which is not existent right here in this indictment. They're using wire fraud. And wire fraud is a gestalt statute that covers, and this is only me talking, plus internet. <laughs> so, so that's what the wire is. It sounds really cool, but yeah, it's the wire anything. is literally the internet. <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. almost tough to, to do the deception without the internet these days. So it's a omnibus. I want to uh, pause for a second, Jenko, and just ask everyone if they would retweet this room because I think this is a critically important conversation that we're having that I think the community needs to be keyed in on. Um, Ira, you're, you're making excellent points and you're doing a lot of heavy lifting today. So thank you, my friend. It's, it's an interesting that they've come at this because they have essentially put the cart before the horse where they've brought the insider trading case before they've given any clarity to the industry as to what defines a security. And that to me suggests an inherent due process issue here because you can't you can't expect people to follow the law if there is an ambiguity well that's and, where the wire fraud is right or yeah, the missing? wire fraud seems to be the trojan horse to get the insider trading case so there's the no real ambiguity to that there 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 there, there is 
I guess you can argue. Go ahead. Well, no, I, I would say there is, Ray, because they're using a term insider trading that's usually tethered to a very specific statute uh, that falls under securities law. Okay. The one that people, that the prosecutors use for like the people who write for the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg columns on stocks. Well, that's and why they the, use it for the headlines and for the media. It, does, it has no, the defense of, hey, I had no notice that this was a stock wouldn't apply to a wire fraud case. That's well, right. You're, you're right. right. So, that, so then you go and look for an insider trading statute. And of course, you're not going to find one in the indictment. So you find, you find wire fraud. And to be fair, wire fraud's always, you could always add that on. But they could have easily also said, um, if, if you wanted to go ahead and, and be cute, uh, this is a case where a database of ways in which you could buy a token on the blockchain was misused by someone because they told their friends that it was going to go into that database for others to look at, and they bought it ahead of time. And then you would be like, what? Well, that's actually probably what really happened here because we don't know what that database is considered. You know, is it an exchange? Because the word exactly. exchange sounds like the New York exactly. Stock Exchange. Or is it a database like in the old days? And I'm old, but you can Google this Magellan, which was the first search That's engine right. that came out before Yahoo or, or, or Angie's list. This is, you know, someone can look at Coinbase and make an argument that it's Angie's list for how you could buy and sell these tokens on the blockchain and that the use of the word exchange is even wrong. And so for me, if you write in, okay, well, you know, Armstrong. That's a creative list. argument. Well, it's Armstrong's list. And now you're using the word insider trading for like a list. And there's lots of lists. I mean, Coinbase may be a prominent one, um, but you could probably. That's creative go... <laughs> because TD Ameritrade or Robinhood is no different than the database, right? Well, it is because they're they they're, have sometimes they're, they don't they're under securities the law. So we all know that. So that's the rule set for them that, that, you know, there we know what the rule set is for Robin Hood when it comes to stocks. But here they're using terms that everyone just assumes without flinching are accurate in the crypto space. Now, they very well may be. And that's where I come in and basically say I feel for them. But they're trying to make the case in the public easier than it really is under law. Yeah, I think they're doing the Nate Chastain, the way I see it, except Nate didn't tell anybody about what the former or what the NFT listings were going to be. So there was no, you know, well, you know the, the NFT thing, CW, in my mind, in my view, is even a tougher case for the prosecutors because, you know, in my view, front running in the art world is a technique. You know, museums a year later may feature an artist. Everyone buys it all up who's got the inside information for that artist. And NFTs live in between art and something else. And so, you know, there's also the issue right there with him. It art seems bad. You can't but, say it. <laughs> no, but it seems bad. But, like, we just can't assume the law comports with what we don't like someone doing. Let me take that a, a step further, because if your defense is, hey, this was an exchange, and, and you wiggle your way out of the charges pending, the facts we started with are bad. If they don't change, 
couldn't the government just find another statue or felony or something, another charge? Okay, so first of all, again, government, in my view, is acting in good faith. We don't want this kind of thing to happen. They are looking to be consumer protectors. It's not fair. And so it's one of those things where very much like some of the cases that I've dealt with over my career, you get this opinion back from a judge which says what, what the defendant did was wrong. It's horrific. It's terrible. There's no remedy for it, but it's not a crime. And so, you know, you could have a result like that. Uh, the other possibility is that because they had a, a, a allegedly, I think, some agreement with Coinbase and its confidentiality agreement, it may very well fit within the rubric of wire fraud, but may not map well outside of a very narrow, narrow situation that this employee had. In other words, it doesn't tell us, uh, well, not under that type of relationship. How to act. It doesn't really impact a broad folk. But Ray, think about this. Think about this. That's a good point. You know, I I have a lot of clients who've got (laughs) perhaps some of the bigger, uh, um, you know, cryptos out there. Um, And there could be exchanges listing them all day long. Some of the times we wouldn't even know. And people are trading the hell out of them. And it's like, when you're not an employee of Coinbase, but in a typical scenario, maybe if it was a stock, you may have some obligation. How do you know how to conduct yourself when some tiny exchange somewhere where you barely know about it, is now listing. I mean, I don't know what to tell. It would be hard to tell not only employees, but any insider, anybody who happens to have information about, you know, with the ENS coin, for example, you know, .eth. Um, things may be happening over there all the time. Uh, and a duty not, not to trade by folks who may happen to have a snippet of information on some cool thing that they're going to be doing. The, yeah, there's, gets, all kinds of, there's all yeah. kinds of overlapping problems here because securities rules generally have lockout periods. There's generally parameters for when people can act on information. You don't have any of that here. You just have what seems to be a company policy that's now sort of trying to be morphed into a securities standard. Is that fair to say, Ira? Exactly. And, and so now they're using wire fraud they're using language that we're familiar with and that's good i mean that's an advocate that's an advocate they're you know they're 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 trying to use persuasion and it's left up to us folks to come in as we ought to or to in the marketplace of ideas and give some pushback uh while this is winding its way through the courts and of course the defendants will weigh in either through their own lawyers or through public defenders and then courts will decide, you know, where all this is headed. But I do think it's important, at least, you know, here in social audio and, and with the rug radio law line that you started, that we uh, that we at least provide some more moderating views on what's going on. I 100% agree, Ara. We, we respect the presumption of innocence in this space. It's an important thing to me as a defense attorney. My whole career is built on it. We also respect the role that prosecutors play. 
because they do, as you very well say, play an important role in protecting consumers. And if there's bad acts going on, they have an obligation to, to uphold their oath to the Constitution and to prosecute these bad actors. But at this point, we have allegations on a piece of paper. And the difficulty for these defendants is they're simultaneously facing a concurrent civil case, which really uh, not only frustrates their ability to protect their rights in the criminal case, but also causes them to have to undo, to expend additional resources, which can deplete their defense in order to protect their civil exposure. So there's a lot to unpack here. I don't see how the exchange gets off scot-free with that civil case out there, but we'll see how it turns up. Lena, thanks for joining. What's up? What do you think? Oh, um, good afternoon. Um, Question, and I don't know much about how to categorize a security to a commodity and such, but how do you see the decision by, I guess, let's talk U.S., to issue a, a CBD as a currency... Uh, you know, which, um, you know, if you look at uh, the efforts going on, they should have a more solid decision on that from inputs in 2023. Do you see that affecting how your uh, respective departments there uh, categorize this and move forward? Thank you. Well, the U.S. is a sovereign, so they could they could do pretty much whatever they want. Um, and to be fair, to the question you're asking, it would show a contrast between what really might be considered to be something that's more like money, which is, um, you know, a central bank digital currency pegged to the dollar versus maybe what else is going on in the history of cryptocurrency with EKG-like fluctuations. So it actually it actually may be adverse because it does show at least a... Uh, a contrast between something which the government will call stable versus, you know, when you're talking about some of the more more orphan um, crypto tokens that are being manifested. So, you know, look, I mean, I also have been, full disclosure, I work for the co-founder of Ethereum, but I also have been for many years as these central bank digital currencies were evolving, starting outside the United States, I, I'm not a big fan um, because, uh, you know, maybe they're needed. But for a lot of folks, if we're super credit cards are really, really good. You wouldn't use a digital currency. You would enjoy the benefits of not being responsible for fraud you know, if somebody commits fraud using your credit card, you get you get your money back. It doesn't even hit your bank account. Uh, it's easy to return things. You could float things for 30 days. I mean, credit cards, I hate to break it to everyone, but unless you're in a in a um, area of the world that is risky and hostile um, or or someone's doing something where they have to have maximal privacy, so therefore... You know, they may want to use kind of a crypto. Credit cards are great. Uh, the central bank digital currency, if it's mishandled, will be the greatest pricing intruder the world has ever seen. Every time that currency is used, 
folks will probably know who uses it for what. And it would be, it would be one of the biggest privacy intruders across the world. And every country would be able to know exactly what's going on. So I'm not a big fan right now of central bank digital currencies. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question, but that that's where I'm at. It helps. Um, thank you. It, it's, and, uh, Thank you for pointing out it's, you know, it's pegged to um, a dollar, et cetera. But when I see uh, Visa, like I, I checked on Visa again today because um, when they hired a head of crypto, that's that brought a good chuckle. But they're allowing payments. So I hear you on the loss side or the, the money, something is determined, but in reality, um, the infrastructure is already providing you the ability to to treat it like a currency. So it's just interesting watching all these things come together and then hearing the lawyers speak about the actual law underneath it and where it could go. And it's just, it's not coming together in a clear picture yet. Well, you know, I, I, I think that seeing this past year a geometric increase in trying to gain clarity with the White House executive order, asking the different branches of government for their input and therefore society's input. Um, we did have some congressional action, um, you know, uh, earlier this year. And I, I still see there being a lot more legislation coming down the road. And once we have that clarity, I do think, unless it's completely devastating, I, I think that it's going to really help crypto, the crypto markets and NFTs. And there is a lot of global coordination going on with the G20 taking the lead on the type of legislation that they want to recommend that the member governments use. And... Um, so there's probably going to be a lot more anti-money laundering, KYC, AML type of um, compliance. And, and people could decide whether or not they think that's good or a lot of friction and overhead to the system. Because, Ira, in the absence of clarity and regulation, this is what we're left with. We're left with people who may have thought that what they were doing was perfectly fine, no different than a real estate tip about, hey, a shopping center is about to go up over here and you guys might want to jump in on this while the property values are low. And some would argue that that's not inherently wrong to do. And you're taking you're something that is highly regulated, that has a long history of legislative and judicial interpretation, kind of laying out what the what the defined lanes are and that's that's the problem you you can't have zero regulation in this space and 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 be completely decentralized because this is what it invites it invites this sort of confusion and it invites obviously bad actors to exploit that confusion to their advantage um, yeah, what do you have what's up Omri? hi hi guys I agree. I just wanted to say, you know, the lack of clarity, I think, deters participation. And um, you can see that, especially with more established brands that are not, you know, crypto native. And um, when you start delving down, you know, oh, what are the 
you know, potential areas of risk. Here in the UK, we do have, I, I feel, more clarity over, you know, the types of tokens. And uh, there is a guidance from the financial circulator that um, specifically addresses, you know, different types of tokens and identifies, let's say, three main categories, one being security tokens, then you have electronic money tokens, which are more akin, let's say, to stablecoin. Stablecoin are probably likely to fall within this. And then you have unregulated tokens that are tokens that don't really fall within the previous two categories. So in the case of, of this litigation, and, you know, as you know, I'm not a litigator, I don't deal with contentious, uh, but... Like like Ira was saying, and like everyone else was saying on the stage, market manipulation and market abuse, which is you know how we we call it, let's say these type of criminal offenses over here, it would require a financial instrument because it relates to a, a regulated instruments and activities. So it's very interesting the fact that although it might be made for publicity, I think it just creates confusion also within the legal profession. And I I just wanted to ask a question because I've not read you know the full um, the, the extract. Could it be that the you know the regulator wants to try and infer you know a security level to the type of instruments that were traded, or because I know that they are using wire fraud, but do you think that eventually they are trying also as one of their arguments to assert that perhaps some of these uh, tokens that were traded uh, you know on the basis of uh, insertion may fall within the category of securities, or is that completely out of the window? It's not out of the window, and it's actually something I'm thinking about as well, because maybe they're trying to get a judicial determination that these things are securities to front run the legislative process. Wow, that, that would have such a bad effect. <clears throat> it's only a theory. That's only something I just pulled out of the sky. But Well, it's a good know. theory. It's a good, it's a good theory, Carlo. That's a good theory, because, I mean, we'll see what happens. I, you know, they may say both in other words to the judge they may make the argument it's a security um but they'll go through contortions in court um and i'm again i'm saying this generally um mm. remind the jury you don't have to find this to be a security to find that they committed wire fraud and so you're going to probably be seeing a lot of of arguments that only lawyers can appreciate latoshi <laughs> jump in man i want to Greg, hear what's you, up Toshi. thanks for joining bring it Hey, guys. Uh, good morning. I've been, been really enjoying all the great tips so far. And I, I just want to throw out a couple of points in, in response to some things that have been said. One is that kind of like we were talking about yesterday, Carlo, I was, I've been surprised that the SEC's strategy has been to go after huge players because it ties up all their resources. And today is the first time where I saw them do something that actually kind of I was like, well, this makes sense from a we want to build the precedent that's favorable to us standpoint. And they filed a civil suit against a few nuddies who have no no resources to defend themselves, probably, um, in, in a case where they can say, look, we're going to set out you know, what the standards are for what a security is for you know, nine different digital assets. And we'll, you know, the odds are pretty good for us in that format. Um, the second thing is Ira was talking about central bank digital currencies and you know, unsecured credit and credit cards. And I mean, that I couldn't agree more that credit cards are like this financial magic that we just totally take for granted because it well and it's so easy. Uh, I'm not convinced that a central bank digital 
currency changes that. I just think there isn't yet a crypto answer to unsecured credit. Um, but I'm with you on the privacy concerns for sure. We have a lot of hands up. We got CW some hands up. In. I, uh, I totally agree with those, the, the privacy concerns. Go ahead, CW. Yeah, well, no, actually, Latoshi pointed out exactly what I was going to say, which was kind of going off what you were saying, Carlo, which was that this is, I think, the easiest mechanism that the SEC has found to sort of create the kind of precedent that it would want. It's had plenty of opportunities to go and say that any number of tokens are securities, and they could have brought any number of enforcement actions to try to do that, but they chose this one particularly because, I mean, it's... The, the facts are pretty clear cut in terms of, you know, uh, what it was alleged that this person did, um, the trades that were made. It's not a ton of effort for them to have to go through and uh, fight uh, because it's just three individuals. It's not this giant, well-funded company, Coinbase. Uh, and and the question of, you know, the insider trading liability is is really secondary to the question of whether or not these are securities. Like the uh, just going through the complaint, the vast majority of the complaint is dedicated to explaining why each of these nine tokens are securities. It's not really dedicated towards the conduct that's actually at issue in terms of whether or not insider trading did or did not occur. And then there's just one count. Uh, so it, it definitely seems like this is an intentional mechanism that the SEC chose and cultivated to be their test case for, you know, how all these varieties of token constructs could be uh, thought to be securities, you know, based on all of the different facts that are alleged, what each token platform said they were doing, uh, what each project said each token could be used for, right? They've, they went into extensive detail to highlight all of that. Um, Along those lines, CW, really I, just, uh, I just put something up that just came in through the, uh, the lawyers', um, through the lawyers uh, chat that we have. And I want to let you up, Wendy, but I also want to draw everyone's attention to this. July 21st, this is a Coinbase blog post in which they are talking about going to the SEC and requesting clarity on exactly what uh, constitutes a security when it comes to these cryptocurrency coins. So there, there's an interesting overlap here. I don't know if that was a preemptive move to get in front of this indictment and the lawsuit. I don't know. I haven't read this post very quickly, but it, this is just developing super fast. Jenko, are you okay? And I'll leave it to the room as well to go a little longer today to unpack this a little more. I'm, I'm okay no, with doing that. Should. If you are, Jenko. I, I think we should. I've got to call at um, 1.30. I'm trying to text them and push it a few minutes, but um, I think we should go. Let me, let me throw this, let me throw this one out there. Um, Again, we're doing this all in real time. I think what's really cool about this is that, that unlike the old days, and, you know, I used to go, like, on Core TV when it existed in this first phase. <laughs> you know, it would be, like, weeks later, you could talk about a case, <laughs> and, and uh, even CNN and things like that. What I really like about this is that, and, and maybe this is not a great revelation, but with social audio really evolving, we can come on, um, you know, for, for like an hour, give our initial thoughts almost in real time. And uh, there's something really, really wonderful about this. Like, you know, maybe tomorrow we'll disagree with almost everything we just said. And this is not legal, advice, 
but I really enjoy the fact that we're able to come on and give sort of our initial thoughts. And here's, here's something that is in that ballpark for initial thoughts. And I'm thinking out loud, but again, if I'm representing these folks and I'm getting in this SEC complaint and they're in, they're in my house and that's what they do. When you file a civil lawsuit and you're a defense lawyer, um, you got sometimes you could treat it like they're in your house. You get to have discovery, take their depositions. You get to have their investigators sit down. You know, subpoenas all over the place. First thing I'm thinking, and forgive me, Ray and Carlo, but tell me whether or not what you're thinking when I say this. But I'm thinking of saying I work for Coinbase. I rely upon, by the way, I do know the general counsel of Coinbase. He used to be a federal magistrate judge, a brilliant, brilliant um, person, Paul Graywall. So, Paul, I, I don't mean anything by this, but first thing I'm thinking is indemnity cross claims in the SEC suit against Coinbase because whatever the heck it is that acts as the predicate for saying that this is insider trading or security or whatever, um, I may have relied to my detriment. I may have worked under the authority of Coinbase under the notion, even if there's confidentiality on certain things, that this would not be things that we pay the highway test. Because if it was, Coinbase would have been doing things differently and they would have um, perhaps not even allowed for these sorts of listings. Or yeah, that ties books. into that ties into the notion that I don't see how Coinbase, and you know, this was what this was opined, how Coinbase can avoid being thrown into this. Um, Ira, I want to let Wendy up, but I want to jump on what you said because not only is it the beauty of this platform and and hashing these ideas out in real time, we talked about this a little bit yesterday. It's also the fact that so grateful to have this community of lawyers to do the heavy lifting because Jenko and I, there's only so much we can do on this platform and law line. And without crowdsourcing this stuff to the lawyers out there who unpack it, who come up here and talk about it, we would never be able to make this work. This is a full-time job in and of itself. So just a, a note of gratitude to the lawyers out there who do put in the time. And I, you know, for those who aren't in our group thread, we, we, we do this, we send out these shockwaves and then we process and we read and it's amazing. The, the, Ira, to, to jump on what you're saying, it's what's happening here with Lawline and what's happening in Web3 with the legal community is something that I've never seen in my 25 years of practicing law. I've never had more fun engaging with lawyers. So on that note, Wendy, what do you got? Bring it. All right. I actually have a question um, because I am not a um, criminal defense attorney, but I'm, I was wondering if you had some insight on how the Department of Justice is investigating these types of activities, um, whether they're looking at blockchain transactions or whether they're using informants or how are they you know, finding these situations, especially with like the smaller type coins um, that, you know, that they're able to come up with a case, like the facts of the case. I think it's probably a combination of Cole a little bit of all of it, out, didn't he? Where didn't didn't somebody tweet the yeah. facts of this particular case out yes. like pretty early, yeah. like that? I, I saw back it in, in April. 
Yeah, these cases usually either happen by way of victims getting the of an FBI agent or a Secret Service agent, um, and that's one avenue. Um, you could have informants. You could have individuals that are looking at what's happening within the company and saying, "This is not good. I'm not going down with these people. I'm gonna I'm gonna be a whistleblower and I'm gonna come forward and hope that I can." be treated as a witness, as a cooperating witness, as opposed to a target when the shit finally, you know, goes down and the blockchain is fully transparent. Um, there are also worse things that can be done. The, the government does put together scenarios in which they, you know, advertise for, you know, services where people can, you know, get money exchangers who are not complying with AML and the currency reporting requirements, and they can just sort of sit there and wait for people to respond and take the bait. And, you know, so there's, there's, there's a number of tools and these are tried and true prosecutorial investigative tools that are just being applied to a new technology. If I missed any, especially I read your experience as well in this stuff, but yeah, I think it's the full litany of, of, of all those tools in the toolbox. Yeah, they have, um, a lot of resources and um, they, you know, the department of justice also Coinbase has their own security team. I think was mentioned in one of these, but I know that they do uh, as do most robust e-commerce and and crypto companies. And it's actually kind of easier. I know it may not feel that way, but it's actually not that hard. And there's a lot of prosecutorial discretion going on now, but it's not that hard to run using the Twitter API and, and um, looking at sentiment analysis, you could run very efficient um, bots and AI and get distillations of things that are percolating that are of interest to you on social media. In the past, you wouldn't have that. It would be harder. I mean, you know. Yeah, the algorithm. The algorithm is yeah. an investigative tool now. That's exactly right. And, um, so I think it's actually become a lot easier because uh, law enforcement could just use, you know, various APIs and do some slicing and dicing, and they could rank things to look into. And this one would have been really easy to see because it, it, it made its way on social media. Omri, my brother, you patiently have had your hand up. You're so polite. Omri from the UK on the other side <laughs> of the pond. What do you got, man? Hi, bro. Uh, so I, I will have two points. First of all, you know, you iterated it already, but I completely agree with Ira and, and you, Carlo. I think that uh, the legal community here in Web is absolutely amazing. And, you know, normally we're dealing in, a, in an industry that is very competitive. And I do think that, you know, this legal community that has formed around, you know, Lowline as well as, you know, blockchain barristers, which Zach has formed, uh, is one of my favorite part of this move of this cultural movement you know and uh, to be honest i spend most of my times around these chats so um yeah i, I just wanted to, to acknowledge that it's it's really incredible in terms of points i had two points and i'd like to uh, wage the opinion panel on two aspects one i think that the different standards that apply to you know certain aspects when revolving around nfts really are really damaging to the industry but also to you know the creative force that some founders have. And I'll expand on this uh, in a moment. The second point is, you know, the fact that I see regulation taking a, you know, sort of a direction that I'm a bit concerned about. And that is 
trying to define the scope of regulation based on a description of the technology rather than on the implication of it or the rights that are attached to it. And I'll expand on that uh, as well. So <clears throat> on the first point, which is, you know, the different standards, if you look, for example, at AML and KYC, this is an industry that revolves quite a lot around anonymity. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a Web3, almost almost a pillar of Web3. Um, but I think that, you know, when you're looking at people that are seeking to build a successful and innovative product, it's really difficult for them. Because the fact that they cannot, you know, implement AML from a commercial perspective, because if they were to say, you know, gate the uh, restrict access based on identifying the, the customers, uh, if they were to do that, well, then that would deter the market from, you know, participating in the sale and, and buying into the project. So, you know, most of the times here in the UK, for example, you do need to not only run KYC, but you also need to register with the Financial Conduct Authority. So it's very difficult to do that. So what happened is you need to adopt structure and become creative. And, you know, there is a time limit to that because most of these recommendations are really coming from the Financial Action Task Force. So you can assume that eventually in the mid to long term, everyone is, al- is going to be aligning to this. So I think as an industry, um, we might, and I know that it's not a popular opinion, but we might want to accept that KYC is going to form part of this industry and we really have two solutions. Either we start adopting zero-proof knowledge solution, like, I don't know, zero-proof knowledge on at the point of, say, at, at, tied to the wallet, for example, which I'm not sure is desirable from, you know, um, a privacy concern. Um, or we find maybe more um, suitable KYC solutions, such as, for example, running a scan on the wallet to see if there are tainted funds. But I, I just think that different standard hurt the industry. And I think that eventually we might have to accept that KYC is, you know, a something that is coming from us. And if we do want this industry to develop, then we might have to accept it. And I'd like to understand, you know, what are the thoughts of the panel on this? I think it's inevitable. Uh, Omri, you're you're absolutely on point. Everything that I see from being sort of head down in the space in the criminal perspective, it's the linchpin of bank fraud avoidance. Uh, the Bank Secrecy Act and the AML provisions are very, very well entrenched in the American banking system and in the financial system in general. And there's no way, in my humble opinion, that the blockchain is going to do an end and avoid being caught in that net because it is fundamentally entrenched in our system and it is the vehicle and the way that the government monitors bad actors and illicit movement of money. Uh, I I just can't see it being avoided. We're, We're going to have to adapt to it. And the threat, and I know the threat, and I talk about the threat, and I'm not necessarily happy about it either. I respect the decentralized view here. Mm-hmm. Um, the unhosted wallets, the unhosted wallets are a very hot commercial topic here, and it's 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 something that people cherish, and they don't want they don't want to lose the anonymity of unhosted wallets. But Ira, you let me know. You've been in this deeper and longer than I have. Do you see any way that unhosted wallets are going to continue to to avoid? having to comply with AML, I mean, MetaMask, how long can this go on, especially with what we're seeing? Uh, let, me, let me ponder that one, not, not on this, uh, you know, this room today. I mean, you know, obviously there's a lot more uh, arguments you can make against hosted wallets on everything from money transmitter services to um, other types of compliance. 
but unhosted wallets. You started to get into MetaMask and things like that that are at least arguably in, in my ecosystem. And I, I am not going to comment on that right now. But th- let me just say this. My, I do have concern. And, you know, there are some things that are kind of axiomatic. Now, one is that we're dealing with dual-use technologies. So people could use the blockchain for good and bad. And we want to promote the good and mitigate the bad. And the, the sad reality of it is, is that as we try to promote the good and mitigate the bad, they usually come with an economic cost. And so this really turns out to be policy arguments. And as you've heard me say before, perhaps in, in other rooms, let's come down to what your taste test is. What's your recipe? And everyone may be different by a little bit. Um, I know most folks do not like to have crime. They don't want people being bad. They don't want hackers hiding using crypto. And they don't want folks doing something that's a metaphor for insider trading. They just don't. It's unfair. But people also wouldn't mind honoring an artist that if you're going to feature them on a platform, buying up some of their work. I mean, that's part of a negotiation. If you're going to feature me on your platform, can you buy up some of my work because you're using my name and likeness and my art to get traffic to your platform? And so at the outer parts of this, there's probably going to be a lot of agreement. But as we start moving towards the more cloudy areas on what constitutes insider trading and violations of something that's like securities law, there's going to be hefty debate. But the one thing we got to be careful about in all this is that we don't add so much friction and such rules that artists and folks who can't afford to hire lawyers don't get engulfed and ensnared by gotchas, by criminal or civil gotchas. Mm-hmm. That otherwise you're basically going to make it so that you're pricing them out of the market. And then if you leave the United States and go to other places for underserved communities, how are folks in a lot of those underserved communities going to ever compete and get involved in crypto and get involved in NFT art and get involved under the pain that almost every step will be scrutinized for illegal crowdfunding, illegal securities, not enough disclosures, front running. And each one of them met with some argument that at least from a moral perspective makes a lot of sense, even though it violates the law. So I think we need to be very, very, very careful that we keep the rules simple and we don't make compliance expensive. You're absolutely right. Because if we, yes, no, no, I appreciate it. If if we over-regulate this space and we've talked about this before, we crush innovation and we chase the innovation overseas. We push it out of our borders. We lose tremendous amount of capital growth and talent drain happens. So these investigators, these prosecutors and these regulators need to be mindful of that because the legislators most certainly are because that executive order and the mandate behind it is that it is fundamentally within our our interest as a country our national interest to continue to lead on this technology because it's not going away but it could tremendously get hurt as far as the innovation coming from the united states and if other countries like china 
end up leading on this because we dropped the ball and sent innovation overseas. That doesn't help anybody, including and, the unbanked in the world. And Carlo, just to, just to add to that, I, I don't think it even works. You know, it's really hard to segregate activities in this space, right? So the problem is like, for example, when you're launching, uh, I remember in 2018 when I was in Gibraltar still, <clears throat> you know, when you launch an ICO, you would have to advise your clients not to, not to run the ICO, uh, not, not to open the ICO to US customers or like to US buyers. And let, let's be honest, you know, like that represents such a huge part of the market. And, you know, then what happened? You, you start geo-blocking, you start, you know, it, it's very clunky, it's very difficult. That's why I'm saying, I think different in, difference in standard is really hurting the, the industry because even if there is a difference in standard, you still, you know, it's not a certain approach you can never really have the confidence uh, to tell your client, you know, you're 100% in the clear. Um, and, and that is a, a, and I think, you know, when we speak about over-regulation, for example, <clears throat> I think that was the second point that I, that I brought up before that I did not uh, expand on. I think one, one part that concerns me is, for example, there is a new proposal here in the UK that deals with financial promotion. And it's very interesting because the proposal specifically carves out or at, le or at least doesn't mention non-fungible token, but rather specifically include fungible tokens. And I think that becomes, you know, a bit of a problem because if you look at a different standard, when you look at um, ERC-1155, where you have, you know, uh, different classes, but you have also different volumes, then at what stage does that become a fungible token, right? Because you're kind of combining both. So I think we need to be careful when it comes to regulation not to uh, try and regulate, describe, you know, with the description of the technology, because otherwise I think we're going to find ourselves, A, the regulation would be lagging behind, you know, new iteration, new technological iterations. And the second, it would just not help clarifying, you know, uh, operations. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, you're right, Omri, because if you look at what happened, and for example, you take what you're talking about with cross-border lack of clarity. That's mm -hmm. exactly what happened with Binance, because Binance, at one point, you could use Binance in the United States. Then there was a period where people couldn't, and they were using mm -hmm. all kinds of VPNs to bounce around and try to do workarounds. And that that doesn't help grow the industry. Yeah, and it becomes also, also almost the ground, if you want, for... Uh, diplomatic fallacies between states, right? Because if, for example, you're regulated in a country and uh, you are authorized to operate, uh, perhaps the regulator will tell you, I mean, regulators say, well, you're authorized to operate uh, from here and within this territory. But then, you know, what, what happens if, say, the US um, regulator wants to have a particular say? I think if you're offering certain instruments, like if you look at securities, for example, if you're offering regulated instruments in, in a country, then the regulator of the country has jurisdiction to, to sue you. But I, I think I just think it's a mess right now when you're looking at this level of distribution within technology and the, I'd say, almost complete lack of harmonization between the different jurisdictions. CW, what do you think? Yeah, well, I think what's interesting is also the it's not going to change and it's it's kind of hard to put, you know, a fine point on where to draw the line for technologies in general. So I think I just wanted to, you know, posit just an interesting hypothetical, right, where let's say Nate Chastain, uh, one of the projects that he bought and sold was uh, Dow Turtles, if you remember that. It's like an NFT project that pretty clearly looked like a security. 
right? And then he told one of his buddies that Dow Turtles was going to be listed on the OpenSea homepage, so they bought and sold Dow Turtles later, right? We could be in the exact same situation we are now with today's SEC complaint. Even though those are NFT projects, it's kind of like the form and function are uh, very similar in terms of what the law prescribes to be a security. And so it's it's really hard to draw the line then and just say NFTs are not, tokens can be. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah, think you can extrapolate. You can't extrapolate. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just want to emphatically agree. You can't extrapolate that one wouldn't be, like if it was non-fungible. I think Omri cited something where they were expressly left out, but that wasn't kind of taken from this case, right, Amri? Yeah, yeah, no, no, it wasn't, it wasn't about this. I was just trying yeah. to say that the moment, uh, and I completely agree, I think that actual regulations should stay, fo- should remain focused on the kind of right that attached to an instrument rather than trying to regulate on the basis of the of the thing itself. So... Um, Precisely, the, yeah, the, the type yeah, of token could be, I mean... Non irrelevant in the sense of how the founders acted, what would, what they promised, what they planned, mm-hmm. how it was distributed. So, so I think that's a red herring sometimes for the discussion. So, I think you're both both made great points, Ira. You know, yeah, you know, I'm I'm going through this in real time still, just looking through the SEC complaint. And besides the notion, uh, sorry for taking us back a little off course here, but besides the notion of possibly the defendants doing a cross action for indemnity, which would then open up discovery against their former employer um, and bring them fully to the table. Um, There's something in law that only law professors love called necessary and indispensable parties to a litigation. And those are generally speaking parties where there, there can't be a full and proper adjudication without their presence. And for me, you kind of can get where if you do a narrow case by the SEC for some breach of fiduciary duty, but they're bringing a case where the heart of it requires some finding and that something's a security or at least a commodity, but, but more importantly, a security. And it seems to me that if they're right, it almost doesn't matter what these defendants did because the entire thing game's over whether would, they implead them or not the game's over if well, it would be an illegal wins. security that they're eating and abetting or conspiring and they would be considering and i'm making argument right here there's probably ways to to really really thread this needle but they're implicitly arguing that Coinbase is a racketeering conspiracy in violation of securities laws. That's where I started. You can't, I don't know how the exchange gets right. away from, from it if they're making this case against <clears throat> these defendants. Greg, why don't you go and then we'll bring others up. Yeah, let me just, let me just, let me just uh, Ray, if I can, just for a second. And so it seems to me that besides being able to bring indemnity claims against Coinbase, that there's also an argument that they have to add them that the government actually has to add them, the SEC, because they're necessary indispensable parties in the argument as to whether or not something is an unlicensed or illegal security 
because it was Coinbase that agreed to list them, not the defendants as individuals. And so Coinbase is essentially the target of this because the other part of this almost becomes unimportant. So in this case itself, I do believe there's an argument there for necessary and indispensable parties. Now, I will be quiet and we can move on. <laughs> what an earth shattering impact that would have on the entire space if that theory ever played itself out. Let's uh, let's bring some people up, Jenko. Well, they may to- not have to. It may not have to play out if if right. they win, if there's, you know, issues or or some some sort of precedent in any form where it was a security because it was a necessary element of this criminal prosecution. I mean, Coinbase, you would think at some point, maybe not early, but as you get closer to that destiny, it's really going to go to verdict and it doesn't look good for the defendants. You insert yourself and you try and, and save the where things go gal gal galavis what's up galavis how are you gentlemen always a great uh galavis, my friend man. uh ira great to see you everybody um it's uh, it's always uh, a treat to get you all together and and i appreciate you know for, for you guys putting on uh this space and and constantly like you know pushing uh you know web3 and and everything forward I actually sent you a, a DM, Ira. I, I wanted to know the thoughts uh, of all of you. There was a, a court uh, ruling, like uh, regarding you know AI, and uh, you know they stated in that ruling that that non-human expression is ineligible for copyright protection. So I don't know if you're familiar with that ruling. Uh, I sent it to you, uh, Ira, on the DM. And uh, I wanted to get your thoughts because that's a, an interesting uh, conversation since a lot of the art uh, in the space is uh, AI generated. Um, I'm going to get going in a second. Thank you, Carlo and Ray and everyone in this room. Um, and I'll answer your question real quick because I know we're talking about this Coinbase indictment today. And this is my own humble view, but I think it's kind of like overblown. Uh, in my view, what, what that... Uh, stands for as a proposition that if you're going to go ahead and use AI to create works, just sign it as a human being yourself as the creator and, and the details of what tools you use or Photoshop. A lot of stuff has AI built into it already. We just don't really appreciate it. Those, those things, uh, if they're controlled by human beings are attributed to the human and so it just it's just people trying to be cute. The statute's on point. It's a human being that's got to be the owner. Otherwise, um, it's silly. I mean, you know, machines don't have standing for taxes or anything. So it's a foregone conclusion that it just it's a procedural issue. So that's that's my humble view. Ira, I'll say it again. Uh, thank you. You're you're a treasure to this community, to the legal community. And we always appreciate you taking time uh, to come in and join us. So thank you. Um, thank you, everyone. Latoshi, come on up. Uh, let's hear your thoughts. Just a warning to everybody, I'm driving. So there is a good possibility that I may end up rugging. Give the, the warning to the people on the road. 
<laughs> well, thank, thankfully, autopilot and Tesla gives me a little bit of a leg up, but I may end up rugging the space just because of the signal drop. So I apologize if that happens. So a cu- couple of Greg, what's thoughts up? And, and kind of going back to Omri's question about, you know, like what what is the structure and purpose of regulation? And one of the big policies that basically every politician will tell you is we shouldn't be picking winners and losers, but that's exactly what has been allowed to go on for years in this space where the SEC says, well, we don't like this particular project, so we're going to enforce against it, but you know what, literally hundreds or thousands of other things go on, and then that just breeds uncertainty. And I think where Coinbase is coming from, um, just looking at the things they've said publicly in the past, that they really want to be a compliance first company, and that they don't have a strong risk appetite for pushing the, the boundaries of what's permissible. You know, I think that this criminal complaint coupled with the SEC civil complaint, I I am 99% certain that they knew that these were coming and that they saved the blog post for today, just waiting for them to become public. Because, I mean, they're a sophisticated group of folks and they've got really smart people working for them. I mean, this is a for sure coordinated effort on their part to say, look, we want to be compliant, but we don't even know how because you are literally picking at random things to call securities and things to not call securities. So we want you, SEC, to actually formalize, take a position on what you think a security is so that there can actually be public debate on it, that it can go through the rulemaking process, that people can object and you're going to, and once it actually does become a rule, you're going to be stuck with it. Uh, and then and then people can challenge the rule if they want to, or they can, you know, litigate it about in the courts, but there will actually be a rule that applies to digital assets specifically, and that Coinbase can look to and say, we followed your, your rule, so what's the issue? And, but, you know, they have been, not winging it is the wrong word, they've got probably more lawyers than any other crypto company on the planet right now, but they've been having to figure out and take positions on dozens of different coins and, you know, it, you know essentially guessing at what the SEC's view is going to be at the end of the day. And it's a totally untenable position for a multi-billion dollar business to be in where you don't even know what one of your principal regulators thinks is a security or isn't. So, I think that's like, you know, there's been some noise about, you know, why would the SEC or why would Coinbase ask the SEC to regulate them or come up with the rules? And I think their end game is not that they really want the SEC to, you know, come up with any particular rule. I'm sure they have ideas about what they want, but I think what they want is the SEC to be actually in a box uh, that they can be held to and say, this is your rule and you have to enforce that rule only. I got to imagine when the when the congressional hearings start to heat up on this proposed crypto bill that Chair Ginsler will be brought to Congress and put in a chair and asked those very pointed questions. And that's going to make for some interesting episodes of Lawline. 
Amri, you got your hand up. Latoshi, thank you, man, for your thoughts. <clears throat> I, I was thinking what's funny that Latoshi was saying, you know, in a way, Coinbase just doesn't really have certainty over how to interpret certain things, so they just want to have a clearer rule. Could be fine if the SEC is doing all of this because they want a clear rule from the court because they don't know how to interpret it. Because, you know, I think, like, when, when you look at it... Um, That's a, a really good yeah, point. <laughs> I, I think it could be that. And, you know, the sad part about this is that there are employ- there are people, individuals that are being, uh, you know, targeted by these claims that, you know, are very helpful because they would provide some certainty if they if they go ahead. But the problem is that, you know, it's done at the expenses of, of individuals. And I'm not saying, you know, these people are saying they have, you know, perhaps acted in bad faith, uh, you could say that. But, you know, it's, it's a criminal, <clears throat> if they are unsuccessful, their freedom is taken away. I think that part is scary. Yeah, well, and I just want to say it's a good point because, you know, it's not just the SEC in this case that's deciding, you know, how to interpret securities regulations. It's other cases that are being brought by private plaintiffs in civil suits like uh, the class actions against Coinbases that are also making allegations of what kind of tokens are securities. Uh, And that's at the state. You have state judges interpreting that and you're going to have 50 different state judges interpreting that. Within 12 yeah. months, it's going to yeah. be insane. It's going to be a mess, and, uh, and yeah. so they're trying to get out ahead of it. Um, I do have to go and hop for a call, though, but really, really appreciate the space. Carlo, Ray, uh, as always, thanks for hosting. Great discussion with all of you all today. Uh, yeah. And look Thank forward you. to the next ones. Jenko, I think maybe we stop here for today and process all this. Oh, I just brought Bambi up. Let her, if she yeah, had something. Sorry. I'd love to hear, and I invited Shekinah a few times, but she's always busy. Hey, what up? What's going on? No, I was listening to the space. It's very, very, very interesting what you're talking about. Um, I actually got your request, Jenko, so I accepted it and say nice to be, to say hi. Um, I'm actually working Yeah, just thanks for always being in the audience and supporting, but if you wanted to have something to share, please. I'm a great supporter. (laughs) No, actually, um, I find it very, I found very interesting the point where you were saying, where you were speaking about, um, uh, that would be like, uh, okay, let me think. (laughs) Sorry. All good. All good. She kind of, what's up? Nothing much. I mean, yeah, like, oh, are you there, Bambi? had to Hop pick in. up a phone call. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, so the very it was very interesting the point you were saying about how regulations, the excess on regulations, could affect the whole um the whole point of like Web three and people joining Web three and make it massive and how how that's something that that's something that us lawyers have to be have to take care of. I think like um what regulate how regulations can can contribute to the the ecosystem and how the excess of them could stop contribute contributing and being a like a, a pain in the ass right okay precisely i think it's a balance and and like we don't want to lock people out we don't want to price innovators out Shekinah, what's up nothing much yeah like i mean i've not 
read through it too much. But I mean, the one thing that probably stuck out to me, you guys probably already discussed it, you know, is the fact that it's not, they didn't bring, I mean, like the cases in, in New York, but it's over on the West Coast and in Washington State. And so I wonder, you know, if that will make a difference, you know, with the with the courts, you know, out over there. I don't think it might. I don't think it will because I think Washington State's typically, you know, I don't know, like, I mean, it's a blue state and, and I mean, that wouldn't mean anything with crypto. But, like, I, I, I wonder, yeah, you know, if, if that will. Is it Ninth Circuit still, Washington? I think it is. I think yes. Ninth, Yeah. So I, I mean, wonder... there is they're they're pretty progressive and yeah, they don't they're not they don't shy away from taking stands it's and making law for the nation. Of these defendants, because now they got to fight a war on two West Coast and East Coast. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the other thing that's interesting, too, because I know, you know, at least California, you know, like their governor has signed, you know, some block, I don't know, some blockchain progressive or pro blockchain type legislation. So I so maybe that that's a good thing, even though that doesn't have anything to do, you know, with the courts. But I, I don't know. Like I kind of also look at all the different, you know, like a like court rulings. What in in the UK, and then we obviously had, you know, like the whole what like serves a process thing in New York, and, and we have this other case that kind of happened what in Singapore, you know. So I think you know, whatever the court decides, if it gets to that level, they're going to look at, you know, like, you know, what other courts around the world have said. And it just depends on, you know, what the SEC's influence, you know, like is or or if they can backdoor something. But um, I don't know, it, it, it gets me excited. It gets me excited that at some point, sooner rather than later, we'll have some type of, you know, like guidelines to follow, you know, as lawyers in the direction. But I mean, I, I I think Coinbase is fine in this, and um, it, it's just the government trying to, yeah, again, backdoor their way into getting some regulation, you know, in in an opinion. So, thanks, thank you. For up, we've been we've up. been talking about this for a year, so you're right. I'm kind of excited to get some sort of case law. Um, you always have tremendous insight. Thanks for for joining, Amri. What's up? He even raised his hand when, when he was talking. <laughs> Go ahead. Rough really quickly and say, I'm excited to see you tomorrow. I can't wait. I can't wait. Shout out to Shekinah. Went way fast. It was amazing. And uh, yeah, tomorrow Shekinah is coming to the UK and hopefully she'll never leave. Very I mean, cool. Way, not, <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> but, but, uh, and, and we have Ellie in the audience. Raise your hand. I don't want to put pressure on anyone, but she always has amazing takes. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm and, and, and yeah, what I want to say is that I think it's interesting also because as Shikana was saying, you know, you have um, the judiciary that now potentially will make some sort of decision to interpret this. And that may be desirable because perhaps the process is going to be more sophisticated and free from politics. But then on the other end, you know, I mean, without going to, you know, on the separation of power and all of that, but it does kind of cut out a little bit, I would say, public opinion, doesn't it? Because, which might not be a bad thing, given the reputation that crypto has, you know, with the public at large. So <clears throat> it, it could be interesting to see, to, it, the question is interesting to understand whether in this case, given the publicity that crypto has, you know, with the masses, whether it might be more desirable and beneficial to the industry to have a judicial decision on how to interpret 
interpret um, you know cryptographic asset rather than say a policy driven process you know through lawmaking traditional lawmaking because that might be driven a lot more by you know public perception political agendas and so on and so forth so uh, yeah i just thought this part was interesting it might not be desirable to have you know government creating uh, legislation on this because they might get affected by by um you know, for, for, for political reason by the general public, where the general public perhaps is not as informed as, say, uh, specialists that are debating and arguing at this point. That's a really good point. Do you, do you see the judicial system as the optimum vehicle for these questions? That, I think that would depend by process. I think it, it depends by how the judiciary operates. If you, if the judiciary, uh, you know, makes use of specialists that are, uh, you know, and by specialists I mean uh, people that understand the technology, people that um, policymakers, and so on and so forth, then in a way you're removing the uh, the public opinion from 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 the or at least you're lessening the, the impact that public opinion might have uh, it might not be as democratic but when it comes to these you know cutting edge decision it might be more beneficial to the industry on the other end i think you introduce a massive subjective element which is the judge and so uh, that you know of course uh, result in a risk if you have a, a judge that is very uh, pro innovation talk about might... a centralized power instead of two yeah. houses of the of government at the federal level yeah. and all of their yeah. and interest just kind of like one old dude should have retired empires. yeah look at empires and monarch. i'm not pro monarchy of course neither you know pro empire but uh, if you look at like uh, ancient rome for example a ruler like marco aurelius was extremely beneficial for rome you know uh, but you're kind of playing the odd and i think power corrupts so the odds are probably skewed toward the damage you're playing the odds that's a good way to put it <laughs> just hoping that yeah but some sometimes people say that elements of that like power is power and there's elements of that that rear its head in democracy at all levels too so like mm-hmm. it's it's something we as a legal community at least recognize and fight against um but but i mean there's no doubt that i that this is important because fundamentally the sec is taking the position in front of a judge that those fungible tokens at least in these instances and they laid out what I think is important is that it wasn't one coin that was an outlier that did outrageous marketing. It was a num- It was all of the coins that the individual chose to front run. They took the position were securities, which tells me that generally that theory is going to be pretty broad and vanilla and not unique to any one project. Or, and that, or maybe, that's telling or maybe me. Good? Or maybe good, right? If if the I'm not sure how it would work in terms of process, but if they actually, you know, brought this case up because it provides such a wide uh, range of different tokens, perhaps having different characteristics, that could provide a very. Um, and then the good... court, the judicial, the mm-hmm. central old rich guy could sit there and delineate. Well, this one was not, but this one <laughs> exactly. was. They're That's passing fair. the ball, you know. They're like, but it's for the complaint. Yeah, maybe they maybe they really took this on to to punt like you said to the judiciary to say you make the decision here's four examples on the spectrum <laughs> yeah make a delineation yeah that could be <clears throat> ellie what do you think welcome well well thank you for having me guys as always um i was gonna add that the cfdc um they just 
issued a commentary on the case also, so it's getting a little bit even more dicey out here. Uh, and they're saying how there's broad implications of this and that they're regulating by enforcement and not as we should be, like Omri said, you know, given the public the commentary, they, you know, they usually like publish in the, um, the proposed rule making and then allowing people to comment on it. Uh, I do agree that, that they're probably trying to avoid the commentary by the public, possibly. Um, and I also disagree that we're going to follow the footsteps of other countries because if we know anything by now, they, you know, we kind of tend to be that outlier. And then um, even in the just the copyright and IP side, um, we haven't followed any of the other countries we've actually gone uh, the opposite way. So I, I'm not sure that we're going to follow that same footsteps as everywhere else in the world. Um, but yeah, the CFTC commenting, it's kind of a big deal too. So I think everyone's kind of on the expectancy that we actually have some rulemaking happening. So I, it's putting pressure on that. In the absence of clarity, you have a power vacuum. And now you have agencies that are all vying for how to best handle this. And now this gets interesting, Kelly. Amazing observation. Janko, I heard you maybe frying some peppers in the background. I'm not sure. I'm coming up on what looks like it's going to be a hard rug for me because of cell service. So uh, I think we let Ellie for another day for today. Yeah, yeah, we save it for another day. Shout out Spotty, Ed Balloon. We have some of the leading artists listening to this nonsense legal talk. So thank you for fun. hanging with us. Yeah, thank you for hanging with us on Lawline, brought to you in conjunction with Rug Radio. Thank you to all the lawyers who come up here and give of their time to help us unpack this stuff. And, and uh, we'll do it again. Um, Janko, I don't think I'm going to be able to do one tomorrow. Um, just a heads up to the community. Um, I've got some IRL stuff tomorrow. So we'll see what we can do to put something together. But anything, there'll be some posting. Twitter feed as far as how the lawyers unpack and interpret all this. Very cool. We'll make it happen. Take care, Carlo. All right. Be safe. Thank you.